Welcome to my den. Today's guest has an interesting story. He initially went to school to become a veterinarian, but ended up as an engineer. Quite the shift, right? Then he spent 29 years in the AEC world, or the architecture, engineering, and construction world, ultimately ending up as the senior vice president and a principal owner at Wright Pierce. We ask some pretty interesting questions on this episode, like what is the future of education in heavily licensed professions, such as engineering or architecture? How do we reverse burnout for mid-career professionals who are part owners in firms that are quickly scaling and growing? And does data support a shift to the gig economy for the AEC world? Later in the episode, you're going to hear the surprising findings of a collaborative survey that my guest did in collaboration with the Engineering Management Institute. Pete Atherton is the author of Reversing Burnout, a blueprint for professionals and business owners, and he is the host of the AEC Leadership Today podcast. I actually did an episode with him just a few weeks ago that you can take a look at on his website, actionsprove.com. Pete and I actually crossed paths a few years ago when I worked in the AEC world at a couple of conferences uh, where he's a frequent speaker, such as Zweig, ACEC, and ROG events. But we actually didn't get a chance to meet at the time, and here we go. Now our paths are crossing again, and we had the opportunity to do this episode together. This really is our first dip on this show into the world of professional services, where the cost of recruiting and retaining talent is significantly higher than other industries we've already explored. The average cost of turnover in AEC is roughly 40% of that employee's yearly salary. So with the average engineer making about 91,000, according to SHRM recent data in 2021, firms are spending roughly 35 to $50,000 per employee they lose. And the turnover rate, of course, is just increasing over the past couple of years. In 2020, Zweig studies were putting turnover at approximately 19% annually, and it's it's fluctuating between 18 and 22% in the past couple of years. In just a few weeks on the Native Digital, Native Analog Show, we're going to hear a second part of this episode from Tim Schroeder, who's the president of Newman Monson Architects in Iowa City, and his strategy that he's put in place um, for succession planning to reduce turnover and just help his firm through this crisis. So you'll hear today's guest, Pete, talk to me about things all over the board that are happening in the industry. And with Tim, we'll get a little bit more granular into what his firm is doing to reduce that turnover. Pete is helping firms strategically position themselves for the transition right now to freelance independent workers based on the study he just did with with the Engineering Management Institute. And it's time business owners heed his advice. I hope you enjoy today's episode with Pete Atherton of Actions Prove. Before we dive in, I have a very, very exciting announcement to make you guys. 
Overture Academy has finally launched. And if you're like, wait a second, what's Overture Academy? Well, I've been dropping hints here and there for the past couple of weeks, but this is basically the first of its kind academy to make you as a leader, a business owner, or a professional native digital fluent. There are four challenges, attract Gen Z, recruit, retain, and engage. And if you get through all four challenges, all four digital courses, you will become a native digital fluent leader. Check out Overture Academy at overture.academy, O-V-R-T-U-R-E dot academy, and get registered for the first 30-day challenge beginning April 1st of this year. The 30-day challenge lasts from the beginning of April to the end of April, and is the first course to open with a a beta cohort option. So you're gonna get access to me more times than any other cohort coming after this will have access to me. I'll actually be live for 25 sessions. The recordings, of course, will be available afterwards, but if you join at the beginning of the session uh, in this first cohort, you have the opportunity to ask me as many questions about native digitals, about the future, and about how you can apply the learnings to your business. I really strongly encourage you to check it out. Again, that's overture.academy. You're listening to Native Digital, Native Analog, the show where we unpack the collisions and commonalities between my generation and yours. I believe that if you don't have a native digital on your board of directors, your leadership team, or at least one you pay to pester you like a fly in your ear, your business won't survive. Let's change that today. And now hang on to your seats or your time machines if you're cool like that. And join me in my living room with the amazing Peter Atherton. Hey, Peter, or medical Peter you look like today. (laughs) How are you doing? (laughs) I am doing great. It is excellent to see you and to be able to speak with you again. I'm really excited about this conversation, but I just have to say, like I said, when we joined, you look like you've got like a white medical coat on. You look like the exact opposite of an engineer right now. So (laughs) I think it's great. Well, excellent. Well, I, you know, this is, these are my workout clothes. So you can't, I can't say that I got dressed up for this interview, but I am fresh. The, The oxygen is flowing. I am ready to speak. Oh, that's amazing. You can see I've, I've got my sweatshirt on actually. So this is a funny story. This is my Liberty University sweatshirt where I got my degree from, right? But I've never actually been to the Liberty campus. I've never stepped foot in Lynchburg, Virginia. <laughs> I just, I, they sent me the sweater. I guess they're online enrollees or whatever, get the sweater. So I've had it for however many years now, six years. And uh, I've, I've literally never seen the campus. So there you have it's, it. It's, I, mean, I, was, I was back in New England last week speaking at a conference, um, meeting with a number of clients and seeing my folks who I hadn't seen live in a while since I was <clears throat> all amped up on my my antibodies. So I said, I'll use this as an opportunity. But I wanted to go, I went to the University of New Hampshire. And one of the things I wanted to do was stop by the bookstore and get the the, the quintessential gray t-shirt with the blue UNH. 
And I told my wife I was going to do that. And she said, you know, you can just order that online. I said, but it's not the same. And this is maybe the true analog in me coming back. But I want to go to campus and I want to walk in the bookstore. I don't even know where the bookstore is at the time. I'm like, is it still on Main Street? But I wanted to buy a shirt, just like going back to the early 90s, late 80s. And so I was uh, representing the gear and I have my new T-shirt. That's great. And okay, so this has always fascinated me as someone who's never truly been to college, but what is up with people getting so up in arms about like their college, their university? <laughs> like how, what happens to people that they get so excited about it? You know, I, it's interesting because we live in Knoxville now and it's been about five years and there's a huge university scene here with the University of Tennessee. And to me, I think it's, I don't have any allegiance other than here and its neighbors and it sort of grows on you in a good way. And my youngest daughter went to school there. So I guess I'm an investor at some some degree, right? In, in investing investor. my time and, and seeing, you know, that on, you know, Saturday mornings, if the farmer's market is all orange. And so I think is this community pride. There's pride that you invested your time there. You met your friends there. And it's maybe that formative experience for a lot of people. Um, but it is interesting. I mean, I do a lot of work with professionals and, and everyone does have that, you know, sort of something with their alma mater, but you also achieve something through that, right? You work through some things together. Maybe it was some really highs and real lows, but, you know, I think it, all that sort of bottles up with that. That was a, a period in time that I, I cherish, whether it was all good or all bad or a big mixture. I think what you just gave is the very psychological and, you know, uh, engineering answer to that. I think most people are just like, I just love the sports and <laughs> go, you know, roll tide, whatever the case might be. But I like your answer better because I, I, so this is interesting. I have a friend who go, she's in Johnson city and is at, you know, the university there. And she and I were having this conversation. She is in her sophomore year. And she's like, Hannah, everything we do is like completely outdated. Like, you know, the these event organizers, they think that they're super relatable to all of all of us as young kids and they think just because they're on Instagram that they're super relatable, but we don't like anything they do and it just got me thinking like what is wrong with college these days? And so, okay, so do you do you have any kids in school right now? No, my youngest is 2 years out of school. Okay. Okay. So Maybe, I don't know if, if that was the case when she was in school. It certainly was when I was there. I mean, the textbooks were like 10 years old for international business. But what do you think's going on with school? I'm just really curious to get, you know, someone's perspective who's who's got kids who've gone through it. Because if I look at the enrollment, for example, this year, we're at the lowest college enrollment of any year in the last, I want to say it's the last several decades but have you seen any of the the data around that or what's going on? I, I haven't, but I, th I, th I think about it a lot. And I have a number of clients who are, you know, their business is investing in universities, right? Build, building buildings, designing buildings, doing right. And so kind of think about it from a strategic planning perspective. Like, are we still building campuses? Like are our states or as, as private foundations, are they still going to be building buildings? Who, what is the experience going to be like? And it's sort of both sides of the aisle with, yeah, people will always want to go away to go to school and have that on-campus experience. But then it's like, okay, maybe the people who could afford it. What about everybody else in the cost and, and who will continue to, 
to put on thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars worth of debt, sometimes a year, right? Depending and for for some partying or some college experience that you know. And so I think there's a maybe a legacy. Like, of course, it was good for us. It will be good for everybody. But I just there's going to be a lot of empty buildings. I think. And it just, it doesn't feel right. The whole bubble with the cost and okay, from a parent perspective, like the cost of this stuff is nuts. I mean, when I, I my folks were struggling when I went to college, okay, this is in the late eighties, early nineties. Okay. And, you know, they worked their tail off to pay off, to, to have me only have half the debt, which was $14,000. That still took me eight years to pay off. Now, granted, we had a lot of kids real early. And so I deferred for a while, but so and it's and okay, maybe the salaries are double what it was when I came up, but it just it doesn't make financial sense. And I think people can learn as much online as they can in person. And even if there's an event to kick off the semester, you can fly in. I, I just I don't see it being sustainable. It makes no sense, especially when you factor in the debt. Couldn't agree more. I mean, that is exactly where my head is and where the native digital perspective is on why would we for at least most degrees you know wh why would we go to a physical school when we can get the same or more value for less cost through apprenticing or through online college so but okay so you you brought up an interesting point though so your clients who are in the the industry of building and engineering these you know for education institutions have, have, do they see an increase in work like the past two years or is it has it leveled out or is it decreasing? I think it, it depends on some of the major. So I think this is from an education perspective. My gut is that the, the rich will get richer and the mediocre schools, no one's going to want to go to them. They, they will have to go to an online existence. But I think the major schools and maybe it's tied with revenue from sport, I mean, who, or just the, the they are the best of the best. I think you start getting Harvard and Yale and MIT and UC Berkeley and those schools start offer online classes and it's reasonable. Like who's not going to want to go to that if the academic is the thing, right? But but also the state institutions, right? The states will want to high, you know, they'll want to maybe adapt their programs, but they're going to want to teach people through the community school systems and through junior colleges and through universities they're going to want to have the education system in place to attract jobs, big picture, right? So I think the state institutions are going to continue to invest because they can, people can come in as long as they can keep it affordable. I mean, it's sort of somewhat tax subsidized. and But I think it's it's the, the middler schools, the low-end schools are just, you know, I think the, the public schools triumph and so do the best of the best. And so, so, it, it, so there, will be, there will be buildings on those campuses, but, you know, I don't know you know, designers will design them. It's just a matter of who's going to be holding the paper on them at some point, right? right. And, and will they get the highest and best use? Maybe they can become affordable housing one day, all these dorms on these campuses, yes. they can be bought out <laughs> by the local communities. And actually we can have affordable housing where there was once a university. That's a really interesting thought. And it, it makes me think of something that I've been pondering and considering, you know, doing a whole series of writing on, which is this concept that education of the future, and I'm really curious to get your thoughts on this, but I almost feel like we're returning to a, a world where college or the college education experience is very similar to what it was in the 1800s. 
So, you know, you had the wealthier families who were going to college simply because they were living on a legacy of wealth. They didn't need to have a job per se, but they were going to study the higher arts or to learn Greek and Latin. And, you know, they they were there for an experience that was simply to further their education, not so they could be a professor, but so that they could simply learn and expand and grow their knowledge. And then you had the middle and the lower class that were apprenticing to get jobs. And we know from the data that apprenticeships are the future of education, at least for Generation Z, because 67% of my generation is saying they don't want to go to college, at least not traditional brick and mortar school. So what, what I've kind of thought through is similar to what you're describing now, which is this idea that the Ivy League schools are going to continue because that's that's what they were built for. That's what they've been around for. No one would turn down going to Harvard, especially if they have a scholarship. But these mid-level schools that are, you know, I, I think of schools in my area like Marshall University, a small private university, or Montreat College, very small private university, they're going to have to do a lot of change and transformation to even stay relevant for the next few years, at least in my mind. What what are your thoughts? I mean, if, I, if, if I'm Harvard, if I'm MIT, how, do you, how can you expand your mission for online classes and have more people who can't afford the full-time experience or the on-site experience to be able to access the best of the best? I mean, I can see those schools expanding. I mean, it would break my heart in a way if we went back to only the rich get educated and, you know, the people who can't happen to afford it through no circumstance of their own, right? We don't choose who we're born by. We don't choose our time of birth. We don't choose who our parents are. We don't choose our circumstances. So because of that, some people get educated, some people don't. I mean, so, but I think the the changes of technology, I think some of these universities are going to see the light and ex- open the doors. And I think people can have world-class educations and it's going to be... The, through the democratization of technology and schools really wanting to be relevant. And I think, you know, we'll be able to find our education in, anywhere. I mean, I feel I learned as a 50-year-old, I've learned so much. And of course, there's been a huge amount of change in the last five, 10 years. I've learned more through podcasts and blog articles and following, you know, down those, you know, the trails than I have before. Now, obviously, that's built on a foundation of critical thinking, strategic thinking, but I, I think there's a lot more opportunity. And I think it's not going to revert back, but it might just, it will look different moving forward. I think technology is going to be a big player in that. But that, but still, like, you know, the benefit of figuring stuff out on your own, giving room to make a mistake, which might have happened on campus. It might have happened on the first job. You got fired, but you, folks didn't know about it because you were away at school and you learned about that and people skills. All of that intangible stuff that doesn't seem to happen, I think can happen with the right, with well-designed apprenticeships. Of course, you're going to fail. Right. Mm-hmm. And and we, you're going to learn from it and we're not holding you accountable like you're you know, su- supposed to be perfect. So it's interesting that we're taking this route. I had no idea the conversation would go this direction, but I I do think this is an interesting sort of dichotomy between an analog and a digital perspective, because I think we're both saying the exact same thing, which is the democratization of, of education means that technology is going to give everybody access to the same types of learning opportunities. No, you know, if they have, if we have a connection to the internet, 
we now have access to so much more education than any generation before us or any any people group that lived before us, right? So it doesn't matter, you know, if you had money when you grew up or if you didn't have money, you can go on YouTube, you can listen to podcasts and all of that is free and available. So, but what I heard you say is, is interesting, which is the access to education for the wealthy, we may, I think we're saying the same thing, which is that simply the way of being educated is going to transform in the now and in the future where maybe universities are simply not the solution anymore. Like even universities who are able to convert to online programs, I believe for most degrees are going to be irrelevant. So like, for example, of course, there are some there are some degrees you simply have to have a college education, right? I mean, if you're going to be a doctor, you've got to have you've got to have formal training, formal certifications. Same thing for engineering, right? Formal training, for formal certifications. But for degrees like I don't know, marketing, business, any of those more generic degrees that my parents or grandparents would say you have to go to school for that, my generation is saying, hell no, we're not going to school for that. We're we're going to go get a, you know, Google ads certificate and use that as a way, you know, as experience on our resume. So I'm really curious, even thinking about your clients, for example, because you work, you work primarily in AEC, right? Or is it professional services as a whole? It's pri- it's professional services, but within the architecture engineering world, that's that's the world. That I'm in, okay. and that's my lens for thinking of you know. Eventually, there's a formal university somehow involved, because yeah. that is the lens that you know. There is real costs, public health, safety, welfare, mm-hmm. and you can't you know have a hack for that, right? I mean, we can get maybe more efficient and effective, but you know, say with obviously with surgery, right? You can't just oh, sorry, that life was lost. Like you know, like you have to be right. And so there yeah. are those professions, um, but I think you know where where, uh, where you were going. I mean, there are probably you know a number of of degrees, but I, I think the certification is the key, whether that be through a private employer or through a university. And I look at it as it is the test of nerves. Like, okay, I'm going to have to prove that I have this knowledge, a workable knowledge, and the stress and anxiety that goes up for that, for taking the test, proving that you know the the pride that I worked for it and I got it, or I worked for it and I didn't quite get it. So now I'm gonna I know I'm gonna dig a little deeper. And all of those those things that happen formally of college with, well, I really blew that and I have a shot, or no, I take that class again. I think the certifications allow a lot of that to happen. And that's where eventually we can develop the toughness to say, you know, no matter what happens, I can make it because I've proved that I can, you know, even if it's somebody else's goals and somebody else's certification, I've proved that I can do something. And it's as much about me as it is about the certification. So I, I, I love, you know, we can learn on YouTube, but at some point, where's the test? Do you really know? And the accomplishment is, is great for the resume, but it's also for our, our self-knowledge and our pride that we can do it. And I think that's the intangible part of a tangible certificate. So looking out, let's say 15 years from now, let's just imagine a 15 year from now future. What do you think? And of course, there's we have no data to back this. This is a future thing. But I just you're you're an incredibly smart person I look up to immensely. So what do you think 
if you look out 15 years among simply the AE industry, so a heavily um, education-driven, you know, certification-driven industry, what do you think in 15 years, do you think there's going to be some private firms, whether it's engineering companies, environmental services, architecture firms, do you think there's going to be private firms that hold enough rapport, I guess you could say, where they could develop their own certificate programs that would then be recognized in the industry as equally valid to a uh, to a college degree? Do you think that's even possible? I I don't think it's not impossible. I mean, I, well, there's a lot of negatives there. I, I think it's <laughs> truly possible. And there's a lot of firms right now that have their you know, firm X university, you know, graduate from this and you have a certificate in project management for our firm. So that is already happening. And I already see that on LinkedIn profiles, like, hey, we have an internal university and this is the case. And I think it means something, you know, will there be a firm or two known as the best that, you know, we truly, when we show you how to calculate the, you know, the size of this for this important water treatment thing, and our certificate, we are the best. I mean, when I graduated school, I, I wanted to work for one of two firms and really one firm in particular. And it's this company, Metcalf and Eddie, because they wrote the book on wastewater engineering. And I, that was the book, I don't want to say everyone that's a little, but certainly most people I know, that was the book we studied from. And so to me, it's like, I want to go there because that means something. And I would say on the resumes, at the time, it was oh, you work for Met. They wrote the book. You worked for them. That's some. So I, I, it is. I think it's happening in the past that affiliation, and I, I can see it happening moving forward. And but it's interesting, you know, as it relates to formal education, there's a move in most states to require in order for you, you know, not only do you have to graduate from an accredited college to get your professional license. Now it's you know, you might have to give your master's degree. There's these debates going on. Some states are switching. So it's not only the bachelor's with four years of qualified work under a professional who will vouch for you with five other references. That's sort of the bar that has been the bar. Now it's, well, you need a master's degree from an accredited place too. And maybe one less year of apprenticeship. So it, it, the licensing requirements are, are getting harder, but that doesn't mean that a certification isn't transferable. So we'll see how that sort of plays out. But it's interesting, you know, listening with what's going on in different legislatures for professional accredi accreditation. So is that happening, I'm assuming, at the legislative uh, level, but it's also happening or being pushed by private firms for some unknown reason, or maybe you know the reason of why they would want to elevate that level of certification. Well, it's a, it's a it's a it's government um, agencies that are responsible for for professional certification, right? They 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 have a board and they they're, they're part of the the state governments because each state has their you know whether I mean it could be you know, a barbershop license versus, you know, professional engineering medical license. I mean, they, they have those. I think there's a push, the university, I don't know if it's self, so universities want people to have the master's degree, right? I mean, I, I don't know anyone who goes to university where the recommendation is, you should probably have a master's degree, being a little dramatic <laughs> or maybe with you, that. you don't need a master's degree at all. Oh, you just, you just need to go through two years of school here. Yeah, definitely. Right, right. It, it's certainly not that. Yet, right? You know, I mean, and but maybe that's the right answer for for some folks. But I, I see that as that you know, to some degree, formally, they, there's a push for more education, and partly because things are watered down. I mean, is a high school diploma worth 
what it used to be, you know, question mark. And, and therefore, you know, people come into college with less qualifications. And so is college now watered down and everyone graduates and, you know, professors aren't as hard grading now. This is philosophical, you know, because they don't want the parent you know, not only the kid complaining, but the parent complaining. And then, you know, the, the, these portals to, you know, so are kids getting, not that I got rough treatment, but I had stern teachers that gave me the what's what. And at the time I was a little bit afraid, but it was the right dose of medicine. I mean, do people get that through school? Do, do, are you afraid of college professors? I was. I was afraid when I started my professional practice, <laughs> there was, oh, you have to go speak to this person. You know, I, I was afraid to go in their office. I, you know, I've seen other people who, you know, other like really well-known professionals um, who I got along with great, which other people I saw coming out of their office crying, but it was for like, you need to do better work. Like what we do matters. And I don't know that any of that happens. And so do people really graduate with the knowledge and the wherewithal to, to really serve in their jobs? And so is that because we're not doing that now, we need more education? I'm not sure how that's going to play out, but I'm saying in professional certifications, we're really looking for more education formally, not necessarily. You really know what you're doing because you can YouTube a lot. We do have these internal programs. Uh, and that's the one thing about, you know, engineering that it, one of the things that attracted me there was it was sort of the um, the practical application of science. I mean, there's these science that goes on forever, right? But at some point, call the question, how are we going to solve this problem? And there's some iteration associated with it. So um, that's kind of my mind. Okay, great. We have this education. What are you going to do with it? And even if you graduated from, you know, the great school, that doesn't mean you know anything. And your first five years of a career is, let's, we're basically, we're highlighting what you didn't learn of what you need to know. And that's probably Absolutely. across industries. <laughs> no, it is. I mean, I I work cr cross industries and it's it, it's the same story. Everyone thinks they're unique. They're not. Uh, here's my no bullshit opinion is absolutely high school's watered down. The, uh, the education that you're going to get from high school or college is significantly less than what my grandparents, for example, would have gotten or what a college degree meant. But the second part of this is that I personally think colleges are, this is their way of scrambling to stay relevant. Like instead of them building an actually relevant education system or evolving with the times, they're attacking these high licensed certified industries like engineering and saying they're grappling for legislature that's going to enable them to stay relevant and have to keep making money off of increased education. Now, that's my my personal philosophy and opinion. I have no idea if that's the case, but just look at anything else that's happening in the world. And that would be where my native digital brain jumps is let's, you know, these dying institutions are trying to latch on to the last thing that's going to keep them relevant. I, I mean, I'm not sure I would disagree with that because the emphasis should be, how about we have, you know, we work on the bachelor's degree versus just adding another. So. Or let's build something like Duolingo. Let's build an app or build an experience that approaches education differently instead of just moving our in-person classes to online, which is what my entire college experience was online. It was, you know, professor goes from teaching in a classroom to teaching on Zoom. You have the same lectures, you have the same, uh, you know, material you have to read, you have the same way of testing. It just happens in a 
so-called virtual environment instead of a physical one. But that's not the future of education. So I'm just, you can probably tell I have I'm up in arms a little bit about college because my online college experience was still so expensive. Like even a year of online university, I pretty I spent about twenty thousand um, dollars just for the just for the the fact of going through. I think it was eight classes through my through Liberty and and whatnot. So anyway, it is still extremely expensive, extremely unattainable for a lot of, you know, lower income and middle, uh, middle class families too. So it, something's got to give, something's Some, got to change. Something's got to give. And the, where it, there will be employers who need to employ people. So if the, if the system isn't producing employees, they will have to produce them themselves. And, and that will be because business isn't going to stop. They'll just have to figure out a way around these legacy institutions that haven't caught up and stayed relevant. But the answer will be, it will come from the private side with, okay, well, you're not making them, you know, we're either going to put on, get people on your board to make you change, or we'll just do it ourselves, which obviously, I mean, you know, I don't know the inside info, but it seems like Google's doing that with certifications and probably Apple's doing that. And so, you know, we'll kind of create our own people who are, aspire to be real good and we'll work hard. You don't need a degree. We'll train you and we'll certify you. Absolutely. hundred percent. We lead the charge. <laughs> Let's do it. Um, so, okay. We've got to shift gears because I really want to hear about this. So I know you did a study in collaboration with another firm at the, was it the end of 2021 that you were basically pulling AE at least and the industry and asking basically what the status is of, of the situation at work and what's changed during COVID and, and all of these things. So what were some of the, the learnings out of that that surprised you or some, you know, some of the statistics of the research that came back that you were like, ah, I didn't really think about that or didn't know that was happening in our industry? So it was, yeah. So, uh, um, you know, another, you know, was a partner, of of mine, not a we we came together. Um, Anthony Fasano is the Engineering Management Institute, and we've been talking for a while. Had a very similar philosophy on the future of work, and we were talking about you know how you know even this is in the before COVID, but then certainly once COVID came, like you know what, their remote work is going to be a real thing, and you know the the hybrid office will be a real thing, and. So will independent professional freelance economy will come to these professional services because we saw it. I had a number of clients who employed independent professional freelancers and were were highly more profitable in their ability to staff projects was so much easier than what everybody else was dealing with. And so we said, okay, well, there's not a lot of great places to find these people, but we're, we're curious. One of the questions we had in the study was, it was about the, the future of work in, in AEC, which is architecture, engineering, construction. And we asked a number of questions and we were trying to get to where are people with hybrid work environments? Where are they with thinking about these future items? Thinking, you know, at the time when we commissioned it, maybe COVID was a one-off and we'd go right back to the way things were, which was always going to be a bad move. But, you know, and what, and we were going to kick the tires on, what are people thinking about independent professional freelancers? And um, because there was a lot of mid-career professionals who were like, I'm done. I don't want to do this anymore. 
And, you know, maybe I attracted them because of my preventing and reversing burnout and how, and, and so, but it's, so the data, answering your question, the data was interesting that a lot of older folks, more seasoned, 20 plus, 30 year people talked about, oh, I'd like to be an independent professional freelancer, but they didn't say it in the survey. You know, they, they aspire to the idea of having more flexibility, but almost like locked in, like they've given up. Like they're 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 locked into this employee, and, and partly because maybe they're they're owners or shareholders, and really don't see a way out, and they're not going to change with kids going into college, with the house still getting ready to be paid off. Like they're too, it's too late to change. But interesting demarcation of the professionals thirty years and and like ten years experience or less, which is about probably about thirty years old, had twice the affinity for an independent professional freelance career. And we saw it in the data six, well, almost a year ago now. And it was when I, when I read your book and you know, your statistics with you know, the, the native digitals and the Gen Zs, half of them want an entrepreneurial career. I mean, it lined up significantly. Some of the other you know, aspects that came out is you know, over 50% of professionals said like work was affecting their mental health. And of course, we were in the thick of COVID, um, but it, it and almost everybody. But I mean, there's so many studies that affirm this: is most everybody wants some flexibility with their work. You know, I mean, just so gone are the days of sacrificing for 30, 40 years, and if I'm still living, I'm going to live life then. I, I mean, especially again, I'm geared to, more towards high achieving professionals, where it, it's sort of in the DNA to overachieve, and so. Um, that's interesting. We're actually commissioning um, this week the second annual study of that. And we've modified that study a little bit. And now it's the present and future of work in AEC. And, and we're really diving into a lot of the research. We want to find out in this industry, what are people thinking about work today? Not only that, you know, the future and you know, flexibility and professional, independent professional freelancers, but you know, really, are you feeling connected to your workplace? How What's the role of mission and vision? Do you see that the authenticity play? Do you see it expressed in the work that you're doing as a firm? I mean, what are some of the specific training and development needs? What are the gaps? And we're really looking to dive into that so that as an individual, you kind of can have your voice heard, number one, and number two, kind of know where you stand. But as leaders and managers, how do I better attract and retain and engage the people of our future who are here today and with the great resignation and different things happening, they might not be here. And so there's the, you know, nice information, but I think more than ever, there's, you know, time is of the essence. There's an urgency to sort of get the people think right, right now um, for them to stay, but even, you know, as important for them to be engaged and not just focus on a side hustle because that's the only place they can really find something connected with a passion they have. And, and to me, it's like great for them individually, but to me, it's like my heart is for individuals, but it's also for organizations, and particularly leaders who really want to do the right thing and 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 are just trying to figure out how. Like that's where I go. And so asking these questions in this form of this industry-wide survey and doing it a second time is to help everybody to achieve success. Because that's ultimately like the win-win that I'm looking for. You brought up something really interesting to me, which is I wish wish something that could be highlighted more. And that is so often the 
the impetus or I guess the result of a crisis like we've had the past couple of years is for people to be discontent with not just the work they're doing, but the company that they're with. So they're not just leaving and moving to a different company. They're not laterally moving necessarily. They're also, you know, we saw the the, the greatest increase in freelance workers and gig workers in the, in the past couple of years than we had seen before that. So it's interesting to me that you, you know, you brought up this point about how can organizations begin to adopt some of these these principles or these things that help people find purpose at work and not just think they have to escape. Because I feel like escape is the first, well, I know for certain it is of my generation, escape is the first outlet, like the easy way out is the first thing we think of when we encounter a hard situation, whether that's personally or professionally. I mean, in fact, my husband and I were having this conversation yesterday about this idea of therapy culture. Like the the fact that my generation is so quickly rushing to the easy way out, which is get a therapist instead of building real friendships, that it's causing us to disconnect from reality in a way that's not very helpful. And I, I think the same thing happens at work. And I can't speak for other generations, but it sounds like from your data, if over 50% of people are are essentially saying like my work is impacting my mental health and I would assume that's with a negative connotation just saying like it's it's impacting my decision to want to keep doing the same thing that the the choice the easy choice is exit and you know build something of my own or exit and just get away from this but what would you like what would you say is something that organizations can think about to like embrace not just this ambiguous term of we got to have a better culture. You know, we, we hear that all the time. I'm just, I got to make my culture better and more supportive. But how does that work tangibly for business leaders, for managing partners? Like what are the things that they need to be thinking about to help their employees instead of just exiting or running away or taking the easy way out, help them see their purpose and their, and their life. They're doing great work at their company. I mean, I, I, I can break that down a little bit. I, I think, you know, th- there's one aspect of the work is hard and it's real and it has real consequences and you don't know what you don't know. And we have to work through this together because these are hard, complicated, you know, climate change, designing a water treatment plant that works, a bridge that, you know, can do X, Y, and Z and buildings and, you know, seismic codes. I mean, there's some real stuff and you don't know it and you have to learn. And even if some of the professionals have a rough, bad bedside manner, so to speak. We have to work through it, but the prize is worth it. You will be a a professional who can do this stuff. So there is a little bit of, you know, suck it up, buttercup. Um, We need to be able to work through this. Okay, that aside. And I think most professionals get that and are willing to work for it. Where I see, and not just through the survey, but when I speak with whether people reach out to me one-on-one or I'm doing work with firms and I talk to a cross-section of the people um, or I'm doing some training and I get the, the anonymous feedback. Where people want to quit the most, and I'll say the young folks who are high achievers who want to do better, they get frustrated with what they say is a, a lack of management and leadership effectiveness. That translates into behaviors that they have to deal with. And it is inefficient processes 
um, ineffectual ways that we do work, which results in number one, me getting delegated to delegated to in a very unfair way. Last minute, the work I do has to be redone, and I don't even get a chance in understanding how it was wrong and how it got redone, so I could learn. And and those types of inefficiencies um, and dysfunctional might be a strong word um, environments piss them off. And they can deal with it for a while if they have a great mentor. And, you know, nobody's, nobody is expecting perfection, but we got to get better. And why do I have to wait to talk to you? Why can't we write this stuff down? Why can't we have YouTube videos that explain this calculation? We do this calculation dozens of times a year. And you're saying only three people can explain it to me? So there is that. And, but they're saying, but I understand this is a legacy industry. This is traditional and we're changing. And so I think if leadership, this gets to you, from a cultural perspective, if we're going to invest in processes and systems that matter, if we're going to really invest in, in mentoring, not just mentoring with a, hey, that's a nice idea, but mentoring with coaching so it has some accountability and it really kind of teach and develop and collaborate with you. So you're in the room where we can have some of these discussions, not just, hey, go do this task then there's a lot more grace given and you don't even have to, you know, the pace of perfection doesn't even need to be that. You just have to start making progress. And I think, so firms that are in that mode of, we want to make it better, we know we're not perfect, but at the same time, you know, meet us halfway. And, and maybe you can write that. I'll teach you and you write the system, you write the process of how you learned. And now, now the person coming next, you know, after you doesn't have to do that. Those are going to be the best, and it doesn't mean perfection. At the same time, the only third category, firms that are talking about that, maybe giving it lip service and then doing nothing about it, uh, very little about it, and then still living in a little bit of dysfunction and chaos, that is sort of the worst of both worlds because you've given somebody hope and then you've dashed it by not really investing. And so I, I think, I mean, and I just, I have an eye now. I probably, when I was in practice as a hard charger, I probably had less of an eye. I have an, an eye and a heart for, an eye for people who, what is the real problem here? This is the presenting issue. What's the underlying? So I'm always looking below the surface of, I, I know what's presenting. Yeah, we could, that's a symptom. What's the real problem? And at the same time, I just, I have a heart for people. And purpose now. I, I used to just be focused on projects and profits, which I think are essential because a project is something complete that works. We've accomplished it. It serves its purpose. And it could be physical infrastructure. It could be a computer program. But we did an actual project and it works. So I think there's real value in that. And profitability, I mean, it's the, that's just the expression of value. We did something, someone accepted it, and it's worth something. But on a other, it could also be, you know, treasures from heaven. I mean, it doesn't have to be money. So I think projects and profits are important, but people and purpose, I think that's the investment. And I think firms that are investing in that, your people probably may not result in, I want to get out of here. It's just, I want to be part of the solution now, which is a major shift. So, so true. And I love that summary of projects and profits versus people and purpose. It's such a succinct way of remembering it. So, okay. So going back to like your journey when, so you were at, you were at Wright Pierce, right? As you were one of, you eventually were an owner, right? Did you right. start lower in, did you grow up with that company? How, how did that story work? No, I mean, when I got out of school, I wanted to work for the, the company I mentioned who wrote the book, Metcalf and Eddie. 
And so that was in Boston area. And so I wanted to be there and I basically, I worked for them until I got my license, my professional license. And then we had our family and we just had our third child and we couldn't afford a house in greater Boston. And so basically I, we needed to move and the company I was working for, I'm still friends with people from that time. And it's, it's really neat because it's almost 30 years and they were going to, you know, promote me, move me to Connecticut, which was where my first incredible boss and mentor, you know, moved to start the, you know, to start to really expand that Connecticut office. But I was going to like back in the day, I got points on my mortgage, got a promotion and we were going to go. And, but my wife very astutely said, well, you're a workaholic and, um, we're going to be five hours away from any family now. And you're my best friends will continue to be in diapers and I won't see you because now you have this promotion. And so that was sort of a, maybe I should look at a different option. And we ended up saying, well, we've got to move out of Boston area. And so, and I talked to a number of different firms and I ended up um, moving to the, you know, Wright Pierce, who I was with for about 18, 19 years and came in as a lead project engineer. And within two years became a junior shareholder. And within three years, I think I was one of the major owners and a, and a vice president. And so that's where I had probably the most professional growth because in a large organization, I thought I was good. I moved to a smaller, mid-sized organization. And then again, I realized, wow, I don't know this stuff. And so we were designing treatment plants. And I'm like, I, we used to have a person that did this thing. And we used to have a person that did that other thing. We used to have a person that did this. Now it's all on me. I need to do, I mean, we had some people who could help, but there was a lot more I needed to know. So those first few plants, when I had to really know stuff was incredible growth, incredible hard work. And but also incredible confidence building where I can do this. And then when it turned, when I turned into the the management side and the leadership side and the, you know, I was like, I could do this. And so, and I wasn't, you know, sort of a big, a, a little cog in a wheel. I was like someone who could actually do stuff. So that just given your background, but that was the most of, you know, and I loved it there until I didn't. And then it was time to, to go. <laughs> I hear you there. Um, so are there any moments you look back on through that that journey at Wright Pierce specifically where like if you were back in that mindset of being a manager for the first time, you know, being a leader for the first time, were there any moments or pivotal points, pivotal moments you remember thinking, aha, like I I get how to do this leadership thing that you may not have not recognized when you first started out. Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, a lot of it was probably through mistakes, you know, yes. <laughs> um, so, um, <laughs> whoops. And, you know, and, and, and the, and the value of people giving you honest feedback. And so that, that was, that was it. I mean, I, you know, I could figure a lot of stuff out, but you know, when when colleagues would say something like you know the way you did that, um, and I, and I had a great mentors when I was at my first company, and there was a little bit of fear, 
and you better do it right because the culture was, we are the best and we will do it right. And so it, it was very supportive, but very high bar. So I, I came from that. So I was always expecting, but at the same time, I was probably very focused on projects and profits and my people and purpose focus came later. And so as I would, in the early days, maybe people were more of the tools to accomplish the job. I grew later to say, well, through the people, we can do anything. And that was a major mindset. And there was a lot that went into that. I mean, there was definitely, you know, this person quit, but did they quit the company or did they quit me? That just really is a gut punch. And in my heart hearts, they quit me, not the company. And I'm going to do better. And so there, there are those, those moments that happened at, at the same time. I mean, I had this probably halfway through my professional career, I started going on <clears throat> mission trips and then started leading trips. My buddy of mine uh, and several of us, we started a nonprofit and we were bringing at, at our peak, we were bringing three teams a year to Central America to help build schools and um, rebuild an orphanage and water systems. And we, we eventually bought land and built a social enterprise farm. And so my my um i learned on the job but i also learned going to places where you really saw people as the treasure and we could accomplish things with high school students we could accomplish things with people who don't have any quote unquote education who would know how to get stuff done more than me who was a qualified engineer when we were trying to like do things and it was just like, wow. And so you learn methods of this is what happens. And so there was a, there was a lot of growth, I, you know, whether it would be just ma making mistakes at work. Um, yes. But when it was also, I had my parallel life of, wow, people are the treasure and that's the, and what are we doing here? If, if ultimately we're not elevating people in what we do so that they can be their highest and best use and, and have fun and growth along the way, What's the point? And so I, I probably had that epiphany my late 30s to when I was 40. And then that was when I was 40. Uh, from, we were going through some leadership and succession planning, strategic planning. And that's, you know, I'm like, I want to be, you know, the top person. I want this to happen. If it's not this time, the next time. And um, I that was everything I strived for. And then at that weekend, we had a little bit before the weekend and we were coming back and on the early part of the week. And I said, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I, I do. That is not going to be the peak of what I'm going to accomplish. And I didn't know what I was going to do. But so there's a combination of, of things that sort of moved, but I definitely moved in a people direction. And then because I do love business, it was a people and organizational direction. Hmm. I had no idea about the nonprofit. That is, that's amazing. I've, I've had my own experiences in, yeah, in the mission field. I know you and I are both believers and, and I, I just learned that today. So, um, I, I could not agree more. Like the people first perspective is so critical to like life. So it makes me want to ask you, like, what is your ultimate goal? Like if, 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 the whole business thing, you said, I'm done with this, at least the way you were doing it and you were shifting to what you're doing now and with actions for, or actions prove and, and all these things, like what, what do you live for? Like what, what gets you up in the morning? 
I mean, I'm still, you know, I'm still figuring that out. I mean, I, I look at it that, you know, I, I've got a role. I mean, I was, I was born for a reason and I have starting player caliber. <laughs> like I can be on the starting team. Like, I, and so I just, I want, I want to be relevant and, you know, to the greater purpose. I want to be relevant today. Um, and so when I, when I think of it, you know, I, 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 I want to make sure that I'm in a position, I always have my antenna out for for what's next and what could I be doing right now so that, number one, I don't get benched, like you're not playing today, or I get kicked off the team, you know, the team of people who are really trying to make our world better. And, you know, um, whatever gifts, you know, I look at that, we we have a stage and I talk about this with, you know, um, you know, as we shift through a different work seasons, we have, you know, our master our craft, make a name, and then we're going to swift shift into, you know, make a difference and then leave, you know, fourth season, like leave legacy. When we make that shift from make our name to make a difference, I say we want to leverage our stage. So it's our skills, talents, assets, gifts, and experiences. And so I want to be able to always be on that stage of, am I, you know, when I think about that, what, what are my skills? What are my talents? What are, my assets, gifts, and the experiences that I have to offer, how can, how are they best serving? And, you know, I, I try to check in with that to say, I mean, where I am now, I mean, with that whole, um, you know, when we were leading those teams, I mean, that we, that got shut down. I mean, we, all, the country we were going to almost exclusively for a dozen years is Nicaragua. I mean, they have a quasi civil war authoritarian government and, you know, people are being captured and, but our farm is still working. I mean, it's like the best form of nonprofit work is like they don't need you. And so that's still working. I mean, it's still funding an orphanage and a school. And, and so that's super gratifying. And so, you know, I don't, I mean, when we were doing the nonprofit work, our goal was to not be wanted. I'm still looking for, from a non-work perspective, where, where can I be now? But at the same time, you know, there's seasons for things. So I'm excited for that next season. Um, but I want to be a player. I don't want to lose my role on the starting lineup, even if you know, it's the off season. Um, and from a work perspective, I mean, I'm really attracted to leaders and leadership teams and firms who are interested in the win-win, who, yeah, real projects because they matter, real profitability because it proves that what we're doing values and we can fund people's salaries and hire more people and do more investments in the organization, in the culture. Um, but it's the people and the purpose. So when, when, so when those are the, like, the four Ps, I mean, I, I, when I'm seeking clients, like I, you know, do you care? You know, is it, are you a leadership team that cares or are you going through the motions? You know, do you see leadership as a responsibility to make it better, to find out the truth about what's happening in your organization, what's happening with your people, and you want to aspire to make that better? Or is it a reward? I mean, it could be a well-earned reward and there's times to celebrate, but if, you, if it's a reward and you're just protecting the position, I'm not your best consultant. Because that will probably piss me off, you know. What I mean, and and, and 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 partly because I mean a lot of the stuff I lived it. So I mean, I I I made a lot of that, and and that you know, do I have regrets? I mean, on some things, absolutely. And so I'm just trying to, you know, how can I not have somebody have that? So I know a long-winded question, but I mean, I'm definitely focused on. We all individually and collectively could accomplish great stuff, and you know, but me people where they are. I mean, some people are, you know. For whatever reason, we'll start with the profession, 
but that it matters what happens outside. It's interesting. I do a lot of work. I, I do executive coaching work. Like I, it's not like I, my lead, but ultimately there's a lot of this and there's a lot of burnout and overwhelm and great opportunities strategic wise. And so, you know, how do you really be successful moving forward there? You know, there, a lot of times there's, there's art and science and a better design to be to do list. There's a lot we can, you know, strategically design a to-do list. I look at it that, well, there's a to-be list. Like, who do you want to be? Yes. Like, who do you want to be at the office? Who, how do you want to show up with your team? But how do you want to show up with your family, with your friends, in your community, in whatever groups? Like, so it's not just, I mean, I, I remember having the epiphany or the reality check. I had this seven-page to-do list, Word doc of all the things that I was doing, two pages of nonprofit to-do list. So that's nine pages of to-do list. I had a half a page, I'm embarrassed to say this, focused on my family and stuff I was supposed to do around the house. And when I realized that, I mean, I was probably pushing 40 at the time. And and we were, again, we were doing some incredible nonprofit work and I was still super successful at work. And I was like, that's not right. It is not right. And so that's how I develop my to-be list, which is as important as a to-do list. And so it's just a way that we can very quickly on one page look in. It's almost like a personal dashboard. Old school way because I did it on an Excel spreadsheet that I printed out. So (laughs) just to look like, am I doing something today to enhance my relationship with my kids and with my friends and that type of thing? Well, at least you had it written down. So you had a visual. I think most people don't even have it written down. So it's just in their head and they don't realize that balance of, I only have a half page for my family when I've got nine for every, everything else. Writing things down is so important. Journaling, so important. Uh, I never did this stuff until my, oh crap, what am I going to do now? I know I don't want to do this for the next 20, 25 years. What am I going to do now? Are we going to take our nonprofit national Am I going to do something different? You know, what I didn't know, I didn't even know I burnt out at the time. I mean, it was a process for me to figure out because there's no words for it. It was a process for me through journaling to really contemplation to figure out I had burned out. And the whole book that I wrote afterwards with a lot of encouragement from people was um, what, if I re engineer, what would I have done differently so that I didn't burn out at the peak of my career and not love what I did? I mean, fortunately, I fell back in love with our industry, and but but just not my job in the industry, and so I have a heart for it. But writing stuff down, journaling. I mean, I don't the stats. I, is, are you eighty times or eight times more likely to accomplish a goal just by writing it down, let alone looking at it frequently, which then magnifies it even more. So writing stuff down is important. I mean, what makes it real? I mean, I do a lot of training and development work with communication, and there is this: Did you really communicate? If ultimately you don't follow up. You don't have a discussion about it. And then eventually it's written down. Like, do you really have a full conversation until all those steps happen? I mean, are you really fully communicating? And and there's a lot of, you know, contemplative time with, are we really investing in ourselves? I mean, that's one thing, like if you're a high achieving professional or a leader or a manager, you're really giving so much, like you have to be fed yourself. And you make the time. I mean, I call it margin time. Like if we're not in, you can't do everything, you know, anything seven days a week, but if three, four, five days a week, you can actually have 30 minutes to think about, 
a better to-do list or your to-be list, if you can't have that, how are you sure you're going to stay on track? And, and, and you can really kind of figure out, like, am I on track? But I think you have to spend the time and write it out. I mean, I think there's just power in seeing things, just like this power in like real communication, whether that be through Zoom or one-on-one. I mean, this power in really connecting, not just on superficial stuff, but in actually sharing about what's happening with people, like the empathy. So true. So true. Well, and it, and I firmly believe so many of those foundational practices of being able to process and and journal and things like that happen when you're young. And so to me, the responsibility of parents to say, hey, you know what? I, I'm going to Nicaragua on a mission trip. Come along with me, right? It's like bringing and involving your kids in that is so crucial so that they can build those habits of how do I serve others? How do I have empathy for people who have a different background? How do I make sure I'm continually checking my own life and myself? I mean, heck, it's some of the reason I even wanted to do this podcast is because I want to always challenge myself to think about things from a different perspective as well. So um, I I love every bit of that. And I think it's so practical too. I mean, there's some things here I wrote down. I, I want to apply these to my life because it's just, you're right. Journaling and processing is so important uh, to preventing or reversing burnout, as I know you put it. Um, so anyway, I, I love those tips. And I, I know we're coming close to where we need to wrap up this conversation. So I just have to ask you at the at the end of this, what's something that most people don't know about you? Like something you thought you'd never share with the world? Well, I don't know that there's anything that I would ever share with the world. I mean, this <laughs> secrets will keep private. But Yeah, share, share all your deepest and darkest, you know, Pete. There you but go. But when people are asking like history, like how did you go from how did you do a career switch? Like what went into that? Like you walked away kind of at the peak of your career and you did something different. Like what is in that? And and I will say like, to your point, like don't wait till you're 40 to start figuring stuff out. Like I, I'm huge with self-awareness and, and things that didn't happen, but it's interesting when I was going back and now I can look back that there's, there's interesting things. Like I'm not a astrology type person, right? But I remember like I'm a Gemini. And I, from what other people told me and what my mother told me growing up, like, oh, you're, you're split personality. Like, you're the twins. Like, I don't know how you're going to show up. And it's interesting because it's like, I think like, how does that translate? You know, when I went to school, I was going to be a veterinarian. Like, I was going to be a veterinarian. And I, although I, I applied to five different schools and one was pre-law, one was landscape architecture, one was engineering, one was um, veterinarian, but I really was going towards that. And I was going to have like a mega veterinary practice. I was going to get into business. And, you know, when I got there, I, like I met my folks were going through a very tough time. They weren't supporting me. I had, to, and then I'm like, it's 12 years. 12, 12, 12 years before I can, you know, get involved and then build my business and, and all the education. And I was like, it's not going to work. I, 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 I don't have this. No one's going to hear it float me. And so I, you know, shifted to engineering and, and partly I didn't really know a lot about it. So, and, and, but I like, why do you want to answer your question? Why do you want to be a, why would you, cause I care, like I kind of give a shit about, you know, animals and like people who can't take care of themselves or aren't in a position 
for whatever reason to sort of take care of themselves, like you could still do well, you know what I mean? And, and so I, I had the heart for animals, but it, it's, it's like social justice. There are different things. Like I just, I have a heart for that, but I also love business, but it's interesting like that. So another people don't understand, like you went for a veterinarian. How did that happen? But I had the, this business side and I was always a high achiever and I want to win. And, but it's interesting, like, how did you get into civil engineering? And I had this, um, back to analog days of, of living in a dorm. So you had these floors and there's the kids, you know, other kids on the floor. And it was just this one kid. It just griped about how hard first semester was as being an engineer. It was just this, this, and he was better than everybody else. And there was a little bit of, you know, I kind of had an interest in this, but you know what? I'm going to zip you, you know, you, you, you think you're that special. I'm going to take the same classes because, you know, so there was this little bit of very competitive coming in and until I really understood what engineering was. And I knew I probably wasn't smart enough to do electrical stuff and computer stuff where you really can't see it. I needed really tangible stuff. So that's the, how did you switch? And now it's like, so I had, it's like the win-win. It's like, so all that being said, like I'm now today really focused on the people and the purpose. Like it was all in the DNA back then. Like why I, I, really want, I really care about people. Like I always have, even though I went through probably 15 years of maybe using them as tools to accomplish business things, but there's a way it all works together. So that, that people usually don't know that. And maybe I'm so old now I forget about it. <laughs> so you were in, you were on track in school to be a vet when you switched? I switched after freshman year. Okay. And had to okay. take a bunch of summer classes to catch up, but yeah, oh, I, I had one year and then I just, but it was, and I still, it was interesting. We take our dog to the vet and I see people cause there's a big vet school here in Knoxville with university of Tennessee. And I see like people wearing their veterinary gear. And I, I just, yesterday we were walking downtown and somebody came in I, I, and I was like young, young woman. And she looked super young, but I saw on her thing, like Dr. So-and-so. And I'm like, that's so cool. Like a oh, veterinary medicine. And I just, I think that's just, it's really neat. There's a, there's a piece of me that does that, um, really thinks that would have been neat, but I, I love where I'm at now. It's never too late to at least own a practice, right? You could, you could, you could still have a chain of the best run, best managed veterinary offices in your whole area, right? But, <laughs> never too know, late. But it's, I mean, it's, I mean, we get into like, you know, people get into practice and, and work. It's like I, as now 30 year into a career or into a profession, there is such value in deep, deep knowledge about knowing what it is. I mean, there's, there's a value in you being a generalist, but to have deep expertise of how things work, like I, I value the deep expertise. So I don't know that I would, and that's what I, you know, transition, like after I took a year off and wrote the book and said, you know, I want to go back into the AEC space because I value deep expertise and, and what that means. And so I, I'm, I'm okay. And then together, if we all have our different areas of deep expertise, Together, we're going to win as a society because we none of us have all the answers. But if if we don't work together, we're not going to get them, and we're probably going to get screwed. Like you know, <laughs> so I, 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 there is this sort of I value everyone sort of having their role in the team. And so what 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 can be our role? What can be we really good at? And that's where it's like you know find something, event you know aspire into that. But it 
I mean, and I, I love your, you know, sort of the career ladder is replaced with a jungle gym. I mean, I, I see that maybe in larger doses, like five years here or there, a decade over here. But I, I mean, I think that's until you can kind of find your purpose and what drives you. I, I, I think metaphorically or, or actually we should be on a jungle gym. Absolutely. Uh, so, so true and such a great way to, to put it. Um, well, I, I've really enjoyed this conversation, Pete. I, um, yeah, I learn something new from you every time we talk and I'm so grateful for that. And just to hear your honesty and your heart, because we need more of that. There's so, so much inauthenticity that happens. I, I experienced that in my daily life. And I'm so grateful to have a conversation with someone who gets it. Like, it's like, let's, let's get to the core of this thing and actually care about people. Uh, it's so important. So thank you for engaging in this with me. Well, thank you for our friendship. And I, you know, I, I, every time I, you know, listen to your podcast or you know, certainly when I've read your book, but when we've talked, I mean, there's just, there's so much we can gain from each other and other, uh, each other's perspective. I mean, obviously we're, different generations and you know we can talk native digital native analog and but there's so much value in spending the time to talk to people and get to know them i mean it's like if we don't have that interest in getting to know people it, i mean it only leads to a negative spot i mean it, it, until we realize that no matter who we are there's 99.9% of us is all the same and, 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 and probably any real differences are probably just perceptions and, you know, not really knowing or being scared about the differences. So true. So true. And, and that's why one of my commitments for this year is I want to invite people into my life who don't naturally come from the same background or perspective that I have. And I want to have good clashes good collisions that are actually helpful and move our society forward instead of all, all of us grouping into these little segments of people we're comfortable with and we're, and we're so fearful of getting out and engaging with people who are different from us. Um, and it, I know you have the same you have the same vision and goal and in all the work that you do is thinking about how do we expand our circles of influence how do we how do we engage with people who may even be, hostile initially in their in their approach to something and then we slowly figure out you know what we have 99% in common it's the 1% we choose to focus on right yeah I, I mean I I fully agree with that and and usually if some if 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 there's I mean, as soon as we think we know something we're on a path in a bad spot I mean we ne we will never know the full extent of what the big picture is we'll never know the full extent of the truth we can we can't process it there's going to be some compromise because we nobody knows the answer truly we will leave it at that then <laughs> thanks Pete I I'm so grateful for this and appreciate you I appreciate you and I look forward to our next conversation Thanks for listening to the Native Digital, Native Analog Show. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd really appreciate it if you would subscribe, leave a rating and review, and tell your friends. If you're looking to connect and talk more about attracting and retaining Native Digitals, you can reach me at hannahgwilliams.com. Thanks again, and I'll see you next time. Yeah.